We were in B&M Bargains um, the other day. You know, we really know how to live. It's exciting, isn't it? And we were attempting to buy a barbecue. I say attempting because we got to the place where the barbecues were for sale. And um, I'm about to pick this barbecue, this prestigious barbecue off the shelf. And I lean forward to get it when suddenly a shop assistant barges in front of me and grabs it from under my very nose. Doesn't say a word. Ha, that's a gracious response. (laughs) So he grabs it from under my very nose and takes it away and gives it to this other lady who is down the aisle. No words, nothing said to me. And me and Claire look at one another as if to say, what has just happened? And do you know in those split seconds, do you ever find that even though your theology, your thinking about God hasn't changed, your behavior gets to the cliff edge of living out a very different kind of gospel? I managed to bite my tongue and walked away. But I was this close to saying something that I would have probably regretted. Interesting, isn't it? Sometimes our behavior paints a very different gospel than the one that we actually talk about. If you've got a Bible in front of you, we're in the book of Jude this morning. We're going to read the whole book, so I will read quite quickly. I was talking to Will just before the service. He said, was it somebody preached 38 sermons on the book of Jude? I'm going to do one. So it either shows that he was very deep or I'm very shallow or a mixture of the two. So page 1164. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that the Lord has once for all entrusted to us, his people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Lord and Saviour. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did himself dare not to condemn but slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and the things they do not understand by instinct like unreasoning animals. These are the very things that destroy to them, that destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. 
See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in any ungodly way and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. For you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and evermore. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your word today may really speak to us. We just thank you for this short letter. Thank you that it is rich and it contains so much. And we just pray today as we look through some of the, the themes that are going on here, that they will speak into our hearts and lives and challenge us about how we live out and how we believe your gospel. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Could I have the PowerPoint up? That'd be great. So just a little bit about this book. Book of Jude. Who's it by? It's by Jesus' brother. Jude is Jesus' brother like James is Jesus' brother. When was it written? Sometime middle of the first century, possibly towards the end of the first century. We really don't know any more than that. Who's it written to? Well, it appears to be written to a church or to churches. Again, we can't really say more than that. Why is it written? Well, it's written as an encouragement to stand firm against false teaching, primarily. That's what Jude's point is. There are those infiltrating the church who really want the church and the gospel to be about license to sin rather than freedom from sin, and this is really standing against that kind of teaching. Interesting things in this book. I don't know if you noticed as I was reading it. You get a quote from Moses, but it's not a quote you'll find in the Bible what Moses says. It's from a book called The Assumption of Moses or The Testament of Moses, all of which I'm sure you you know very well. And later on in the book, there is also another quote that Enoch is speaking. Anyone tell me anything about Enoch? He went to heaven. He got taken by the Lord. He's one of only two people in the Old Testament who didn't die. Who's the other one? Elijah. So we've got Elijah and Enoch. And Jewish writers in the 1st and 2nd centuries BC like to speculate quite a lot about Enoch. And there are two books called One Enoch and Two Enoch. And actually, this is probably a quote from One Enoch. Now, this has sent some people in a bit of a a tizzy, really. What do we do? This writer is quoting stuff that isn't in the Bible. But you know, Paul does exactly the same. He will quote philosophers and poets and say, actually, when they're true, I can quote them and include them. 
And this is what I think is going on here. So we don't need to worry about getting an appendix in our Bible with the assumption of Moses and one Enoch in there. Don't worry about that at all. What he's doing is saying, actually, in these cases, this is true, and it's right that we use them. Does this all sound familiar, this passage? If you were here three weeks ago, I hope so, because we were looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, which covers many of the same themes. Now, why they cover the same themes, we don't really know. Did Peter and Jude know each other? Did they go out for a coffee and decide what to write in their letters? They might have done. Did Jude read Peter and think, oh, that's fantastic, I'll include quite a lot of that in my letter, or vice versa? We don't really know. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Because what matters is that this was important stuff for the early church, and it's important stuff for us now. Now, I'm not going to cover all the ground about false teachers that is in this book. We did that a couple of weeks ago. If you weren't here when we looked at 2 Peter chapter 2, can I encourage you to go onto the website, have a listen to the message that we looked at then, um, because it really is quite a lot of duplication. But we finished, when we were looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, with a question. Do I preach a false gospel to myself? Do I preach a false gospel to myself? And I want us to ask another question here. Do I allow myself to live out a false gospel? Do I allow myself to live out a false gospel? So just keep those questions in the back of your mind as you look through. So we start off in verse 2. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. At the heart of the Christian life is where we're called to receive things and then to live them out. So we receive mercy from God. You know, we don't deserve forgiveness, do we? We don't deserve relationship with God. But what Jesus does, he dies on the cross so we can receive the mercy of God. We receive the peace of God in order then to pass peace around, to be peaceable with one another. We receive the love of God so we in turn can love one another. In verse 1, it tells us that actually we're being kept by Jesus until he returns. I don't know about you, but I found that really encouraging as we start this letter. That Jesus, we are being kept, held in God until Jesus returns. But then we get to verse 3, and we get this impression that actually Jude would rather have been writing a letter about salvation rather than about false teachers. But actually he feels compelled to write this letter because of whatever the situation is on the ground that he's writing to. And he's writing this letter because... People are thinking that the Christian faith is about freedom to sin rather than freedom from sin. So they're looking at it as if to say, actually, we can live sexually immoral lives, we can do whatever we want because of the grace of God, and we'll just keep on going. But actually, this is something the other writers of the New Testament contend against. Here's Paul in Romans 6, 1 and 2. So do you think we should continue sinning so that God will give us even more grace? No. We die to our old sinful lives, so how can we continue living with sin? And yet Jude, just like Peter, is deeply concerned that the church is being infiltrated by people who are sort of peddling this kind of message, who are saying, actually, this is what the gospel is all about. It's about freedom to, not freedom from. And then it goes on, and it's about people who are going beyond their remit as a human being. They're starting to judge these fallen angels. It's it's really quite complex what this could all be about. But this is effectively what's happening. And actually, Jude will say, along with Peter, this is God's business. 
Even the angels won't judge in this way. So what on earth are you doing stepping into God's shoes and passing judgment? And in verse 12, it says, these people are infiltrating your love feasts. Now, what a love feast was is in the early church, people lived much more like an extended family than we do today. And the church would regularly eat together. They would share food. They would have these meals. And it's saying, actually, these people are slipping in under the radar. And they're teaching you all this kind of false stuff. And it risks pulling you away from the gospel. So we've looked at freedom. Let's have a little look at hospitality, thinking about these kind of feasts. Chris has already mentioned this morning the importance of hospitality. The importance of actually loving one another. You know, a few weeks back we were talking about these one-anothering phrases of the New Testament and how you can't love one another if you're on your own, how you can't love one another in isolation, how we need to do that one with another. You know, you can sit and watch every box set there is on Netflix, but Netflix won't love you back and you won't be able to demonstrate the love of God to it. So there's just this call here for hospitality, to have open homes, open lives with one another, where we do say, let's have a coffee together, let's have a conversation. Let's love one another in real, practical ways. But these false teachers, well, they've joined in. They're coming under the radar, and it says in verse 12, they are shepherds who feed themselves. Verse 13, it says they are heading for judgment and destruction. It's not easy, some of the stuff that's being talked about here. And we saw in 2 Peter that it can be very easy for us to read all this and think, well, these are not my issues. You know, I don't go around heaping abuse on celestial beings. It's not something I do. And it can be something that we say, these are the false teachers over here. It's this group, or it's that group, or it's the other group. But actually, what we find here is that the finger needs to be pointing just as much at us as we question our own hearts as it does at other people. Because look at verse 16. We get something rather different. We find out there are people who are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires, boast about themselves, and flatter others for their own advantage. What is grumbling and fault finding? Does anybody ever feel grumbly or grumpy? (laughs) I'm putting my hand up. Yeah, we'll do it, don't we? It's part of being a human being. And sadly, you know, churches can become, if you like, breeding grounds for grumpiness. They can become places where, well, any place where you put a whole load of people together with different tastes and different opinions, and you get potential for that kind of stuff. And fault finding, you know, we find issues with one another that aren't necessarily core things. Now, there's a massive difference here. Jude is not talking about real, robust conversation about the core of our faith. And as we look, we'll see he's talking about things that are quite different. N.C. Wright puts it like this, and I quite like this. We have to tell the difference between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference. (laughs) Just read it slowly, it does make sense. The differences between the differences that make a difference and the differences that don't make a difference. Really, really clever quote. Jude is clear. There are things in our faith that make a massive difference. There are big issues that are always up for stake with the Christian faith. There are things that if they come under threat, we contend for, we stand for, we stand firm on the word of God. 
I think I probably told this story, but I was uh, story before. But I was once playing for a, a service as a teenager, and um, it was in a church I used to go and play in every now and again. And there was a visiting preacher. It was particularly high up in this denomination of the church um, that I was playing in. And he was talking about the resurrection. And he said something along these lines. You know, it really doesn't matter whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. It's just the idea of resurrection that's nice. The idea of new birth. Something rather like spring. And I'm there thinking, hold on a minute. I will contend for the resurrection. You know, I will stand on what the Bible says and say Jesus physically rose from the tomb. That actually, when you start saying that, that is no gospel at all. It cuts under, and it cuts in, and it's for absolutely no hope whatsoever. That is a thing that makes a massive difference. And when the Bible says something really clear, and when we stand on God's word, we find that there are all kinds of things that make a huge difference. And we contend for those. We stand on God's word for those things. But how much of our grumbling in life or in church is actually about those kind of issues. How often when we fault find with one another, is it about the resurrection or the incarnation or the creation or the the gift of the Holy Spirit? Or how often is it just about those kind of things that we clash on everyday life issues? I wonder how often. See, the New Testament has lots of areas where the early church could make decisions according to their conscience. Food offered to idols, Paul will talk about. Some people chose to eat food offered to idols, Other people didn't. It was a matter of personal conscience. Same with observing of holy days. Whether preachers were to be paid or not. Some preachers could take a fee, others say, no, I I don't want to. These were issues of conscience. Now, those probably aren't our issues today either. But there are all kinds of issues that we can have, aren't there? And I was just thinking about this. You know, as we come to look at our building, God is not particularly concerned about the colour of carpets. It is not a big issue. It is not up there with the resurrection. So we have to be very careful that we don't grumble and fault find when it comes to those kind of issues. God is not even interested in the quality of the coffee that we drink. I might be, but God probably isn't. But there are those issues that we can quickly come in and grumble and fault find about. But I have to hold my hands up and say, you know, I can be a grumbler. I can be a grumbler. I can fault find. There are times when perhaps I've been to a, a conference or a service and I can find myself saying, that preach was just far too long, far too long. You're probably thinking that already this morning. <laughs> and it can be about anything. You know, those notices, they just, they went on for 30 minutes. What were they thinking? Why were they so long? And we can find ourselves, whatever it is, coming in and grumbling, fault finding. Now, you may think, well, this is all innocuous. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we have a grumble with one another. It doesn't matter what happens. But, you know, grumbling, fault-finding, can quickly take root in our minds. It can quickly start to cloud us and rob us of the joy and the freedom that we have in Christ. Because Jude is not alone in saying this. If you read through the New Testament, Paul will say the same, James will say the same, John will say the same, and Peter will say the same. All the main writers of the New Testament will talk about grumbling against one another, about fault-finding, as being something that is really quite anti-gospel. We contend for those things that make a difference, and we're gracious with one another about those things that don't. 
See, grumbling can also become a way of life. I found this on um, Facebook the other day. I've put a, a correction at the top because this isn't quite true. But what this person who'd put this up was saying was actually so often in life, when we become grumbly or fault-finding, what happens is rather than deal with our own stuff, which is the things like our attitude, our mood, I mean, some of this stuff we do have limited control over, our reaction to things, our words, how we treat others. But those are the things for which we are responsible before God. Those are the things that God calls us to, to live out the gospel in those areas. But actually, it's a lot easier to try and not control this, not try and work this stuff out, but try and think, how should these people behaving around here? How should my family behave? How should, if you're married, my spouse behave? How should my colleagues and friends behave? Or then we go into the grumble mode around all this stuff. I put we have a little impact on, say, the government. We do put a cross in a box every now and again. But it can be very easy, can't it, to get that all out of balance. And the problem is, things that can start out being about issues can very quickly become about people and very easily become about personality. I have never been uplifted by my own grumbling. Have you? Have you ever found it edifying? Have you ever found yourself being built up in the, in the faith by grumbling? A grumbler or a fault finder is when we start to get those priorities in the wrong place. You know, rather than grumble with one another, let's talk graciously to one another. Let's talk to one another honestly and openly with mercy and peace and love. Now, this is something I find so challenging. Do you know why? Because this comes in exactly the same passage as all this stuff that we like to point the finger and say, this is other people. And then what Jude does is points it straight back at us and say, actually, this is you as well. All this stuff that we're talking about in this passage is about us as well. So Jude offers us something else. He said, rather than grumble and fault find, be built up. Rather than tear down, be built up. Rather than pull one another down, build each other up. You know, um, a number of years ago when we were in Epworth, somebody had donated a broken theatre organ to the church. You know, just the kind of thing every church needs. And this broken theatre organ sat at the back of the main church for a number of years. And it was huge. It was this sort of size by that sort of size. And we eventually decided it needed chopping up and thrown away. So we had a, an organ-smashing morning where everyone came with various tools and we took this thing to bits. And as we took it to bits, you realise the intricacy and the work that had gone in to make this thing. It was probably from about the 1940s. So there was all these little diode things, no circuitry or anything in it. It was, it was really old. It took us two hours to destroy that. It had probably taken us years or somebody years to make it. You know, being built up is a long process. It's far easier than to tear down than it is to build, but far better to build than it is to tear down. So what about being built up? Verse 20, Jude encourages people to be built up in faith by praying in the Holy Spirit, by having that prayer life that is rooted in the power of the Spirit working in our lives. Are we living out this kind of gospel? Are we living that kind of gospel out? Are we verse 2 and 22 
believers, being merciful, saving people, being full of peace and love. Can anyone tell me where this is? It's a blue sky, just in case you're forgetting what they look like following the rain overnight. Anyone? No one been there? I've not been there, but it looks nice, doesn't it? Those are the walls of Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. And they were built, I think, in the 5th century. And at the time when they were built in Constantinople, Constantinople became the, the, sort of the chief city of the Roman Empire as Rome fell. And um, people used to talk a lot about theology in the streets. Now, I was in a cafe with Nathaniel the other day, and there was this family behind us talking about Brexit. And Nat turned to me and went, that sounds a very boring conversation. And I went, you're probably right. But Brexit, and theology was like the Brexit of Constantinople in the 5th century. And people would greet one another and say, what's your view on this very technical term for the Trinity? And this is what the, the posh people would talk about, the intellectuals would talk about. But at the same time they were doing that, outside these city walls, in these what are now nice fields, there'd be lepers sat there. There'd be people who couldn't feed themselves sat there. While the theologians were having these highfalutin conversations, the living out of the gospel wasn't what it should have been. And so there was a disconnect. Thinking was, was great. They were getting the thinking right, and we still stand on that thinking today. But actually, the living of it wasn't quite right. And so you got this misbalance, you got this mismatch. It's amazing to think that all that happened there, in front of those beautiful walls. But that's what was going on. Faith in Jesus had become primarily about thinking. Don't hear me wrong. It is really important that we think correctly about Jesus. It is essential that we understand the gospel as it is explained to us in the Bible, not our own version of it. But hand in hand with that, it has to be just as important how we live this kind of stuff out. How it finds root in our daily lives, how it finds root in our hospitality, in the way that we speak to one another, in the way that we have attitudes to various things. Beautiful verses from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. You know, we're called to be loving. This is all the kind of stuff we're called to live out. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love never fails. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Verse 22, Jude reminds us again how to live out this gospel. Be merciful to those who doubt. Merciful. Not harsh, not critical, not fault-finding, but treat one another with great mercy and love. He then says, save others by snatching them from the fire. If people are on the verge (coughs) of rejecting Jesus, then there's that call to reach out. You know, sometimes I think we can be so reserved that we don't reach out to people who we feel are, are going off on tangents, and we just leave them to go and then wonder where they've gone. Do we love one another to actually reach out to those who are perhaps on the verge of falling into the fire, as it puts it here? Show mercy, undeserved favour to each other. Mercy without fear. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Mercy that sees the seriousness of the problems we face if we go away from the gospel. But then it says, 
all of this, it says, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. We're still called to hate sin. We're not called to compromise on that, but we're called to be merciful with each other. And so the question, are we living out the kind of gospel that Jude is talking about here? Is this what's being lived? Is this what we're thinking about? And is this what we're living out? Is it of love and mercy and encouragement? Are we building one another up? Even over this summer period, are we doing that? Building one another up in Christ? Or have we shut the gospel down? Are we becoming fault finders with each other? And we're pointing to one another, not to Jesus. So we get to the end of this amazing little book, and we could probably spend 38 weeks in this, and pull it apart and look at every little bit of detail. But the last bit is amazing, isn't it? To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. It's God who keeps us from stumbling. And we can support one another in doing that. And to present you before his glorious presence, without fault. Why are we without fault? Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. What Jude does is he says, this is the hope to which we've been called. This is the hope that we live out. This is the hope that we believe in. Stand firm in it. Don't get swayed. Stay with it. Are we living this kind of faith out? Or are we letting ourselves live in a way that is less than what Jude would have us live? Let's just spend a moment in quiet, and then I'll lead us in prayer. says in verse 20 and 21, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Lord Jesus, I want to pray that as we've looked at this book and as we've reflected back at what 2 Peter 2 says as well, I want to pray for each of us here, Lord, that you will keep our thinking to be in line with Scripture. And you'll keep our living out of that thinking to be kept in line with Scripture. Lord, root us in your word, we pray, but empower us by your Holy Spirit to live out the life that you have called us to. Lord, even over these next few weeks, I just pray that you'll give us the courage to build each other up. Give us the courage to say that word to a friend or or a family member, to to keep going in their faith, to keep rooted in who you are. (coughs) And Lord, we thank you that these final words of this book are true. That you are able to keep us from falling 
you are able to hold us until that day when you return in great glory. Lord Jesus, we just bring praise and glory to your name. Amen.